Welcome to the Abstract Doctors Podcast. Today, Dr. G and Dr. C speak with MD, PhD, and Assistant Professor of Internal and Integrative Medicine, Michelle Dossett. For more information on Michelle, please visit physicians.ucdavis.edu. Visit the Abstract Doctors for information and upcoming podcasts. The Abstract Doctors Podcast. The doctors are in. Open up your mind and say ah. So, so, so Michelle, while Ron's fixing his mic space, I want to let you know that, that I'm, it doesn't matter where How's I'm this? coming at this, but I'm coming at this. Much from, better. Yeah, I'm coming at this from the space of service members and veterans who okay. have sustained either combat exposure to, you know, in it, whether it's a blast injury, brain injury, PTSD, or just yep. the stresses of being in in the military or and, and some of the post-military issues that veterans uh, go through. That's kind of my world of clinical and research, et cetera. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and again, it doesn't matter about that cohort, you know, compared to other cohorts, but, but, but certainly we have found uh, that, that that group has done extremely well with the integrative medicine holistic approach that includes mindfulness, includes you know, in, absolutely includes meditation, includes soon will include more HRV now that we get uh, Dr. Birch going there. But I mean, you know, and, and even folks that you'd think, well, this person expects you know has been in the military, they expect a certain more rigid approach, and you know, you know, but no, they, they love but, this stuff, course, especially when they start to feel well. You know, yeah, and, and, yeah. and Ronald, you know, as soon as you can get that engagement and they're in sync with their provider or their significant other or, or their dog, they start to groove and feel well. And it's called living, you know, and you get some of the, the, the burdens of their symptoms and their, their, their trauma off of them. You know, it, it's not a fix, but it's a beginning. So with that, I'll segue back to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Garbo, who's going to bring it, bring it. Right. Uh, don't start yet. Just listen. <laughs> just listen to me for a Look, minute. Don't tell him that. He's going to do. He's going to start. All right. So anyway, so I'm at the place none of you want to be right now. Okay. COVID Central. Where's that work? And no, that's four o'clock on a Friday in a pain clinic. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Just that's number one. Number two. Number two. I uh, I reached out to. Uh, so I went up to this pain conference uh, and I presented a poster on placebo analgesia. And around that time, I wanted to challenge myself. So I had reached out to Dr. I think it's Kopchak. Is that yep. uh-huh. Kopchak. Yeah. I, I got sort of uh, uh, politely dismissed, uh, but I looked, I looked at the people at the Institute for someone who was also placebo, but also uh, mind-body oriented. And so I had I asked them to reach out to you, and we spoke on the phone a few months ago, uh, a few years ago. Yeah. And then as I was trying to find, again, somebody to talk to about placebo and my thoughts and challenge my thoughts, I reached out, I, I Googled you, and saw that you went to UC Davis and reached out to your staff there. And that's how we got connected. So are you saying she was your second choice? Uh, <laughs> that's my take. <laughs> I didn't take it that way. <laughs> but, so tell us about Dr. Kopchak, Michelle, if you can, before we get. Yeah. So uh, Ted Kapchuk is um, one of my mentors. Uh, he is the director of the program in placebo studies at Harvard Medical School and um, has spent his life work studying placebo and um, is one of the premier researchers in placebo in the world. Maybe the uh, and he's, premier. Yeah, uh, he, has, he has built a really um, excellent team of people from all different disciplines, um, science, different, different branches of science, as well as um, anthropology and social, other social sciences to, you know, collaborate ethicists to collaborate in terms of thinking about placebo and 
the ramifications of placebo and how we can use placebo clinically in an ethical way. So, so, um, so he's not just looking at placebo in the terms of, of research. He's talking about how it affects life and yeah. not just clinical care either. He's looking at anthropologists. I mean, he's incorporating it into culture. Yeah. So, you know, the, I think it was Ron Garbo, you had sent a, an email earlier today, something about hope and expectancy. And um, Ted's great. He, he, um, you know, he did this study with uh, placebo acupuncture uh, that was published in the British Medical Journal, I don't know, like 12 years ago, 2008, I think. And they, they went back and interviewed some of the people who got the sham acupuncture in that study. And, um, and really what he was doing, he was studying patient-clinician interactions, but under the guise of placebo. And uh, the, what some of the people in that study said, if, if you go back and read the qualitative paper that they wrote, um, they talk about hope. These are people who have, you know, been to every uh, major Boston big hospital to see the lead gastroenterologist in IBS. And, um, and so they enroll in this study and they don't expect to get better. But yet there is this kernel of hope that maybe just maybe it'll make a difference. Um, and and uh, so w w playing devil's advocate is that yeah. a good is that a good thing? I mean, I mean, I mean, okay, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean it, is is there implication there that well, at least we're doing you know that they can at least take a, that away from it? But, 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 because I, I would I would look at it so, in a so different way. Yeah. These these are people who actually ended up getting better, um, but uh, you know it was sort of I think in in this particular paper it was sort of trying to understand the mindset of the people who enrolled in this study and yeah. in what drew them to, to that. And, and was there something specific about the study design or something they marketed or advertised that, that he, that they found was bringing on that hope, or is it just the idea of being in a study? I think it was just the idea of being in the study, maybe because it was an acupuncture study and 12 years ago, that was a little bit more novel uh -huh. than perhaps than it is now. I think it's worth uh, also Speaking to the expert, uh, if you could tease out the difference between optimism and hope. Optimism versus hope. Well, I think, you know, you, you had suggested earlier, right, uh, that optimism has this. I, I, so may I? I positive. Think, yeah, please. Yeah, I think, I think optimism may not be fully objective. It's 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 trying to look at it in a in a biased way, in a positive way, um, and hope is something different, um, uh, and just like expectancy is something different. Um, and I think what we're really trying to master is 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 an ethical way to give people hope in a re reproducible manner. That's in essence what we're really trying to do. And if you don't already know, this is the abstract doctors podcast with Dave Sifu and today's guest we're very lucky to have Michelle Dossett did I pronounce that correct correct so both a medical doctor and a PhD so I'm the least smartest one in this room um, she uh, practiced internal medicine used to be at Harvard with the placebo studies uh, Institute now at UC Davis and uh, very interested in the mind-body connection, the therapeutic effect of the patient-clinician relationship, and clinician well-being, or the word that's really hot is burnout. Burnout. That's new, resilience. New yeah. Resilience. So these are many of the things. Uh, but um, what I, one of the reasons uh, I also wanted to have you on was you. You also are quite familiar with heart rate variability. And I think, if if I may, yeah. moving, launching forward, uh, I believe the autonomic nervous system is where we can put our reproducible hope. And I think the language of the autonomic nervous system is heart rate variability. And I, even though it gets a lot of attention, I still think heart rate variability is still underappreciated in the placebo studies 
literature and world. And I, I, I think teaching a human being how to self-regulate who has been helpless and hopeless for months and years uh, is the, the, the process. So I always, I, my, the quote I always say is hope is a process. It's not a knife, needle, pill, electrode, institute, person in a white coat. It's none of those, it's a process. And uh, I think that process is autonomic rehabilitation with heart rate variability being the language and modulating it with breathing or creativity or an expert coaching you, but it's not the expert. Um, and that's, that's what I believe we're working towards. Well, and M Michelle, is that broad enough for you? <laughs> no, really, no, really. I mean, I mean, that, 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 that's Ron's premise that, that he's been pushing and, and I'm, I'm down with it. I get auto, I get autonomic rehabilitation, but, but, you know, fr from where, where you're coming from, is that enough? Is, is, is it, you know, is it, you know, it, it may be a means to something and maybe that's what Ron means, but, but is it actually a, you know, a big enough space in, in knowing a little bit about your research? Well, I think, I think ultimately it's a question of how does healing happen and how as clinicians can we help facilitate people's healing? And I think there's lots of different approaches to that and different people will be open to pursuing that in different ways. Yeah. And yeah. And I, yeah. And so my claims, I, obviously they have to be ethical. And so my claims is that I believe this process of autonomic rehabilitation is a process for health trajectory change, not cure. Yep. And, 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 and that's what I hope to do in the clinic and hope to outline for clinicians, which is overlapping circles with everybody else, just like you, how to improve at the same time the patient-clinician relationship is the, the same answer for improving clinician well-being. Absolutely. Absolutely, right? Because it's, it's that interaction that gives so much, many of us meaning in terms of our work. And if we're burned out, stressed out clinicians, we can't be fully present for our patients and we can't help them to learn these skills. And, and Michelle, can you elaborate a little bit on some of the things we were just talking about just before we came on the air in terms of uh, and some of your work in terms of how the patient and uh, the individual who's seeing the doctor, I won't call it a patient, um, yeah. and, and how it interacts with the clinician um, and, and how their synchrony and how, how you know, their dyad is, is vitally important to the process as well? Yeah, so this is, this is some work that I'm currently engaged in and in, in don't have definitive data by any means, but there's this really lovely study that Carl Marcy did at MGH over a decade ago um, where they took established client therapist dyads and um, this was actually done with another marker of the autonomic nervous system, um, galvanic skin response, um, and looked at the rate of change in galvanic skin response over time over the visit in both the client and the therapist. And they saw patterns where those changed in sync together and patterns where they were very disparate uh, in terms of their up and down motions over time. And in those the, the, the visits where there was a higher level of concordance in those two signals between the client and therapist, blinded raters actually rated those interactions as being more therapeutic and, and having greater empathy. So even if they were both anxious and, and had sweaty palms and had more stimulation, that, that, that was okay as long as it was in sync and they were jiving? You know, the authors don't clarify that, uh, you know, these are, as you know, um, any kind of arousal will give you that signal, whether it's a positive arousal or a negative arousal. And yeah. they didn't look at that in, or examine that in, in detail in the paper. I, I might find that interesting. I mean, you know, like, you know, it's nice to be happy and to be a cheerleader, you know, with, with a, with a right. person you're saying, but doesn't sometimes that's very inappropriate. You know, I, I, I suspect there probably wasn't a lot of, you know, like, arguing or, 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 you know, right. negative, uh, uh, agitation in the room. Yeah. In these a little tearfulness though, a little crying, a little hug. That's, you know, Perhaps, I mean, just, yeah. I'm interested to do that. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and one of, one of the things that we like well, to, oh, good, good. 
Well, I was going to say, so, so getting back to Professor Kapchuk's work, um, one of his, um, uh, Karen Johnson, who, Kit Jensen, who's in Stockholm, Sweden, but she spent a couple of years in Boston and she's done this really elegant work looking at, at the at MRI scans of physicians' brains when they're treating pain in patients. And areas that light up in patients that are involved in pain regulation light up in physicians' brains when they're treating patients' pain, suggesting that there is this kind of neurologic mirroring that's happening uh, during during the therapeutic process. And the more of that there is, the... um, the more positive the the interaction was for the physician involved. Now, is that empathy or sympathy, Ron? I'm sure there's a difference. He's going to. It seems like so, that's an empathetic. So, so I suspect the brain portion is the right insula. The reason why the right insula is important to pain physicians because that is where you interpret pain. It's also the the area for empathy, which I call feeling other people's pain. Yep. In addition to that, we know that that part of the brain is larger in meditators and it's also involved in heart awareness. So if you create a habit of breathing and paying attention to your heart and what it's doing, you may actually may again, may, uh, grow brain for the area that modulates empathy and your own pain. So for me, it's this trying to convince people to maintain this habit of 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 breathing, and I call it when you're stuck on the fear superhighway, trying to grow insular off ramps off of the fear superhighway. That and that's and convincing somebody to breathe for three months or tell them, I'd love to prescribe you three months of good sleep. Just imagine how you'd feel with three months of good sleep and their, their eyes get wide, but you know, it takes time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I always like to bring in the concept of, of what, uh, what other things can layer on that? Because we got, we can, we can dive into the breathing. Got it. But we can we can dive into empathy, but but what other things in the space? You've talked about sleep. We always like to bring up what what's the role of creativity? This is called the abstract. What's the role of creativity? However, you find that whether whether it's purposeful, a specific type of art form you're doing, or whether it's just an appreciation of listening to music or, or looking at art. Well, what's that role? I'm fixated. I, I see. I saw Michelle that you're a vegetarian. I'm a vegan. Uh, uh-huh. So you know, what, what's the role of help? Ron, Ron is 85% a vegan, he tells me. 85.7. There you go. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm six days a week currently a vegan. All right. Good. But, but you know, you know what, what factor does that bring? And, and clearly, you know, teasing apart each of the associations is not Physical as Physical activity. Physical. Thank you. Well, yes. Yes. Social support and interaction. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's it's weird, like like these are like somewhat commonsensical, and like appear in like every you know uh, poor Richard's almanac, not to mention the blue zone, and yet like it's it's so like well we're gonna try one of them now, we're gonna do uh, HRVB, uh, then maybe later we'll try sleep wake. I'm like please, you know, like like let's not insult our patients or the people around us. Like can we not bring the full you know the full measure to it? And it's just so difficult apparently for people to do that. And, and as I'd love to kind of hear how you think about that as a clinician, how you bring all of these or some of these variables to your patients. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think it's, they're, they're all very important. And when I see a patient in clinic and do my initial evaluation, I'm trying to get a sense of um, sort of what are their stressors? What are their health concerns? what are their coping techniques, the healthy ones and the unhealthy coping techniques? And uh, what are they open to shifting? It's rare that I'm going to find somebody who is ready to make a complete lifestyle change. Um, And there are some people who are so overwhelmed that they can only do one or two things. 
And so I have to kind of figure out where in that spectrum are they? What are they open to? I, I remember seeing a patient once who had eaten nothing but peanut butter sandwiches and sometimes peanut butter and jelly sandwiches Ooh. since age four. Wow, I'm jealous. <laughs> and, and he was in his 50s and he was sick. Um, no surprise. And, and yet making any kind of dietary change was like moving a mountain for him. And so we, my sort of pushing that, perseverating on that in the first visit was not going to be a therapeutic thing, right? So, so it's like, okay, you know, these, these are some different things. What, what, are, you, what are you interested in changing? Um, uh, where, where can we begin to get some leverage to start to shift the system and the whole, um, uh, yeah, shift the whole um, system. Yeah, and, then, yeah. and then once you start that, then you begin to build some momentum. Yeah. Well, I, I think that one of the hardest things when you're using a motivational interviewing technique is keeping your, your own galvanic stimulation at a level like, you know, like you're eating nothing but peanut butter for 50 years and you're having. And, you know, and that's where being a long term meditator as a clinician is incredibly yeah. valuable because you yeah. can sit there with the patient and not have your internal autonomic response going off the. Or, snark or snarky sarcasm is another way to say that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and how, how do you be present non-judgmentally with that and say, yes. you, know, and, you know, I see that's uh, the bit of an obstacle right now. You know, let's talk about what else we can, we can shift. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah I, and, you know, I, I think, I think even if you're not taking that approach to try to combat more than two issues that an individual has got and an, especially an initial engagement is foolhardy because you could promise them yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna fix everything you know and then you know when they're not better in two weeks they're like well you know so i mean that, that's so you figure out where, where can you get the biggest bang for your buck and and what are they open to i uh i so for 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 those you know that are trying to figure this out for other people i do like to have checklists or if I may, the misnomer of using reductionism to talk about holism. Um, so here's a checklist if you want to raise a well-rounded child or you're working with them. I believe I call it trust in three. We have three perspectives, whether you're in English class or, or whatever, we have three perspectives. There's my perspective, which I love telling everybody my perspective. Then there's a higher skill and that right insula is empathy, being able to discuss second person, or if we want to use an athletic analogy, is what is your opponent going to do to you tomorrow? Okay, let's get in their head. And then there's the third person view, and that's the person in the booth objectively. And that's Dr. Sifu telling me when I'm, you know, uh, off my rocker saying something. So that's an objective view. So to be a well-rounded person, to challenge yourself, you should be able to articulate all three views. Wow. And you should be able to move through those three different views uh, to be a healthy person. I'm getting somewhere with this. No, I, no, I'm thinking, no, you're good. I'm loving all it. Right? Loving it. So, so in fact, if you're recovering from a stroke or you're studying for a test, you can read something 50 million times. But this is the difference between a network connectivity versus a pathway, I say. The pathway is, okay, I read this 50 times. Well, try creating a pathway. Uh, speak it. Teach it to somebody else. Yeah. Draw a picture. Summarize it. And now you're creating a network yep. that's more adaptable to that skill you're learning. And, and so creating a network between those three views, you should, we are in a crisis of empathy right now. We are in a crisis of looking at things objectively. We're in no crisis of being able to tell people our own opinions. Anyway, so what I'm getting at <laughs> is trust in three. The people, whether it's polytrauma and helplessness or it's a high-level athlete, they, they usually ha are in, uh, have an impairment in at least one. Trust in yourself, trust in others, and trust in something bigger. And so I offer these people who are locked in helplessness, they've lost trust in themselves at a minimum. And when you're establishing a relationship, 
you can't, and I'm talking to residents, you cannot move forward until you develop trust between the two of you. There is no point in talking about peanut butter sandwiches until you develop trust. And so the simplest, the most simplistic way I tell people to develop trust is, and I'm talking to a basketball coach, I say, get past the drill is stupid. You are stupid. The sport is idiotic. Try and breathe through all that until they say a fear word. I'm afraid. I'm scared. I'm terrified. I'm worried. Repeat that back to them in some other way. And now they've been heard and now they can change their autonomic nervous system and their gal. And so, so they've lost trust in others and you have to work on that. And then back to this placebo conversation, I believe hope is a process. So building trust in something bigger, if you love trust, maybe it's autonomic rehabilitation, maybe it's something else, but they got to believe in something bigger and that bigger shouldn't be, you know, an institution. It should be a process. Well, well Michelle, then, then how do you take them? To, let, let, let's assume what Ron just said is correct and probably yeah. is. It's I like it. All right. So, so, so you're with the peanut butter eater or somebody else. How, how do you, how do you, what, what, how do, what would your, how do you approach some of these things? How do you build that kind of trust or, or and relationship? So the first thing I do is I listen. I mean, I think that is the fundamental baseline how you how you create trust is they've got to know that I've I've heard them and that I understand their concerns and their health process and um, before they're gonna you know I mean they already know I've got the credentials right I don't have to convince them of that but um, uh, we we did some qualitative interviews of of patients who came through one of my research studies, and we asked them about their views on the doctor patient interaction, and we got some really interesting, um, fascinating comments about how like if the doctor doesn't spend enough time with you, then you can't be sure that they really understand what's wrong with you, and then you can't trust that the treatment they're prescribing is the right one. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that would be a take home, not just for clinicians out there, but for the healthcare systems that we work in. Absolutely. You know, I mean, we need to bring time back to yeah. primary care and the clinical encounter. Yeah. And, you know, I think we uh, do ourselves and our patients a disservice um, be- with, you know, these very short visit times. Clinicians are stressed because they have too much to do in the time that's allotted to them. Uh, and so they're not at their best and uh, patients feel rushed and stressed and may not share all of the relevant information. Um, well, yeah, I mean, imagine, imagine a world, imagine a future where when, when an individual came into your room, in, into the exam room, you're seeing you actually had in front of you and you, you could, you could recognize it without leafing through a chart and there was, you had a dashboard that had how they slept for the last month, you know, in, in you know how they how their HRV was, you know, so that you you instantly knew that you, you they had filled out at home or wherever it is, you know, uh-huh. through, through an app and reminded them a week before to what their pain level, whatever the information, so they felt like they were engaged, and 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 the the doctor could go through that and literally within a minute. You could you could have a feel for where they were. They heard that. Then you could actually have discussions, as opposed to the inane way we practice medicine now, where you know they're filling out a form or they're asking them a question. They don't even remember what they had for breakfast. You're asking them how did they sleep over the last two weeks. You know you're checking their blood pressure, and somehow that means something at that moment. You know, so we're kind we go through these rituals. I'm like, well, unless they actually have a problem with acute blood pressure management, that can't take up three minutes of their visit. It, it can't. I mean, you know, that it's their the time is too valuable. How do we capture those physiologic measures or their history or even, you know, you know, uh, the incident, you know, what their their medications were? How do we do that in a way that's futuristic so that we can actually capture that time? You know, because I, I'm, I don't know if my vet, Veterans Health Administration is going to give me more time to see each veteran. I just want at least the time I have to be optimized. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm happy to have 20 minutes, but then they give, then we'd have 10 minutes of 
filling out forms. You know, I, I don't want, you know, that. So, so I think that's something that, you know, we as clinicians and any, and to be fair, even the people that we take care of, they should be advocating for this. Like, why am I filling out this form? Don't you already know this? You know, I mean, you know, didn't I fill this out in the best or, you know, uh, you know, don't ask me how I'm sleeping. I'm wearing a, I'll, I'll advertise. I'm wearing a Fitbit on my hand or I have an Oura ring. Don't you know my data? You know, and, and we're not even close to that. I don't know, maybe in, no, we aren't. Maybe in we California aren't. you're closer, but in Virginia, we're not even close. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm rewriting a grant this weekend to try to get a cohort closer by using these wearable you know, biometrics, but yep. you know, it's still like it's somehow innovative. I'm like, it's not that innovative anymore. You know, I mean, these devices have been around, but an EHR sadly have been around for 20 years now or 25 years. And there's no data in there that I can use, you know? Yeah. And, and, and so, so I think that needs to be something going forth is figuring out not just in a clinical setting, but you know, in, in health clubs, in, in everything we do, you know, well, why are we not more aware of what to do with this information, you know, and how to use it or when, when we're creating art to stay on that topic, you know, if, if you if your all your data points to that when you are sculpting or you're reading or you're playing your guitar over the course of a week, you're starting to see your app filled with greenness and your your Ura um, mood ring is turning green and is massaging your hand because you are in sync, you know, and when you're with the, the doctor in the clinic and your two rings are making love to each other because you're so in sync with each other, you're like, this is what it should be about, but we, we don't have that data. On commercials we do, and in Tom, Q, Tom Cruise futuristic movies, he always knows all his data. But, but you know, but, you know you're, I look behind you and I see boxes of paper. You know, I mean, you know, you've got data sitting there. So, you know, I know we're just kind of sharing frustrations here, but yeah. you know, I, I was hoping you were going to tell me that at UC San Diego, they're more progressive and they've got it all integrated into a, into a health system. Not so much. You see huh? Davis, but no. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so yeah. Good. Uh, if I could dummy it down, it gets down to fear. I mean, one of the classic situations with chronic pain is, the MRI of the lumbar spine comes back normal and the clinician is like happy. Hey, no cancer, no herniated disc. And the patient is in distress. I've seen five doctors. The MRI is normal. What's all this pain? And, and the key word is, is fear that drives the autonomic nervous system. And so we shut down. Okay. And we're good. MRI is normal. And they're still terrified because all this, and they still have pain. And what people don't recognize uh, when these patients, they have slow movement, bradykinesia or kinesophobia, fear of movement, yeah. um, that those, the fear is a fear of future pain, fear of future injury. So you are going to have to backtrack to hear that fear and spend enough time to educate, Absolutely. uh, uh, to address so that fear before that galvanic or HRV number is going to go down. And so we know if fear is that driver, we know that trust is parasympathetic, right, Dave? I, I've heard that. Yes, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> and so you need trust in that person heard you. You need trust in the model and then eventually trust themselves. So yep. that's so, Michelle, we turn to you. What's the what's the answer to all of this? How do we move to the next level? I'm teasing you, of course. I'm teasing, but 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 what 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 do you, what do you what do you see as potential next steps? So you know, you're 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 the leader. You're doing leading research in this space. You, you know, yeah. What, so what what what, 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 what when I'm, when I so one of the things I'm doing, I'm, I'm using these you know HRV and and galvanic skin response. Um, and video uh, uh, ratings of interactions. And we're comparing uh, two different uh, patient-doctor interactions, one that's modeled after sort of like a standard primary care visit and one that's modeled after an integrative medicine consultation. And the, the latter is longer and asks more detailed questions. And so the question is, and, and, you know, my lab has shown that, for example, in patients with gastroesophageal reflux, people who get this 
uh, expanded or integrative visit are more likely to have improvement in their GERD symptoms compared to people who get the standard visit, irrespective of the treatment that's offered. It's just the therapeutic interaction. And so the question is, is that because of the increased time spent? Is it because of the content of the visits, the, the questions that are asked, um, or is it some kind of combination or interaction of the two? And so that's what we're trying to sort out right now. Because if we can figure out, are there certain kinds of questions or ways of being that enhance that connectivity that we can offer it in the limited time that we have and train clinicians to behave in those ways? Or is time itself really important? And do we need to increase the length of time so that we can enable these kinds of connections and interactions to happen? And if that's the case, then, you know, I think the next step is doing um, more sort of like health services research and looking at cost. Because I, what I suspect is happening is we're ordering a lot more tests and a lot more medications because I've got 10 minutes with this patient and I've got to please them and get them out of my office so I can get on to the next patient. And if uh, instead I had 20 minutes to sit down and have a conversation with this patient, um, might we decide something different? And I wouldn't order that test or order that medication because clinically it's not really necessary. And the patient may decide, oh yeah, well, if I make this lifestyle change or try this, then you know, let's see what, if that improves things. Yeah, the, the peanut butter sandwich is a perfect example. The, you can't compress that visit. And the value you brought to that visit created the potential for trajectory change as opposed to, here, take this, um, do this. Yep, get on the treadmill. Um, that is a compressed visit, but will not change trajectory. Yeah. Uh, the, it, it has to be a skilled uh, clinician and they have to have time for trajectory change. Well, well th that brings up, so M Michelle or Ron, you know, I, I think I know Ron's answer to this because we recently had this discussion, but does that skilled clinician need to be you, need to be the, the physician? Physician or could it be? Right. Uh, somebody, a, a, somebody else, a nutritionist, a the nurse, a psychologist, a health behavioral person, or an avatar that looked a lot like you and said really nice things. I mean, I'm, I'm not being that facetious. I mean, because it, I get time, but but what is that? You know, what's the other factor? It's a great question, and you know, we hear all this stuff about practicing at the the top of our licenses yeah. as physicians, right? Um, I, my sense of this is, uh, from having had conversations with patients, is that they want to hear this from the physician. They don't care what the medical assistant or the nutritionist or whatever says. If it comes from the physician, it has a level of weight that doesn't come from other healthcare professionals. And, and I, I don't mean to be elitist saying that. I am totally for interprofessional care. I think it's important. Um, and I don't think we have the data really to know how to best use interprofessional care to optimize health outcomes for patients. Because, because we can sabotage it. This is what I tell. Regardless of the amazing quality of the clinician they're working with, if I, as a physician, do not think you can survive nine hours in this world without a benzodiazepine, and I write a prescription for a benzodiazepine every eight hours as needed for anxiety, it has just destroyed everything that wonderful clinician has done. So this is why we need a process so that the physician, I think some parts of it could be uh, uh, done by the clinician, but we can sabotage it simply with that prescription and what it's saying to somebody. You cannot get nine through nine hours in society without a pill. The other, I think the other key is, is how does that handoff happen? Um, I have, I have a physician colleague who works up in Nevada city and 
one of the things he did was pioneer bringing mental health into the primary care practice that they have up in, up in the hills in the Sierra Nevada. And they do warm handoffs. He walks the patient over nice. to the social worker's office, introduces them, and, and makes that connection. Nice. Which is very different than saying, I want you to go see a therapist. Go, go, go look at this website and pick somebody, you know? Yes. That. Also, the way they do it in a dentist office, not to simplify, but like you spend the longest time with the hygienist and yep. he or she are doing their stuff, asking the questions, making notes, brushing, whatever they're doing. And, and, and you're like feeling great, you know? And so they have done the interaction. You know, then the dentist comes in and uses that probe and does something, whatever they're doing. And you know, and you, and you, you, you think he's going to break your tooth just with the probe. And then he's done, which is very different than the, the physician model, where typically the nurse may get some information, but the doc is kind of doing this. And then maybe they'll go to the next person, you know, and, and I'm like, you know, I, I love it when my, like in the rehab model, when these patients have seen the social worker and they've, 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 they've gotten there ready. And then you know, when you go in, really, you're there to answer questions and to reinforce what everybody positive things, yep. as opposed to, you know, just to me, that's, sadly, that's the type of my license. I don't need to ask people how they slept. I'm happy to do it. You know, I don't know that I can ask it really better. I mean, it's a little arrogant to think I could ask it better. You know, I don't, but, but you know, if, if I think part of maybe, do we need to better train or you know, shape how physicians are speaking with some other patients. You know, I, I always like to put it back, never want to put it on the patient ever, you know, and I don't think it's appropriate to put it on the folks that, that are probably doing an unbelievable job. We, we all need to do it, you know, in sync. But I, I think physicians sometimes do sabotage without even meaning to, and the white oh, coat absolutely. alone. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Rod, I'd like to support what Michelle said. Um, for health trajectory change is so critical. If you're not getting there, I do think the right physician uh, and the right amount of time, the skill can create that trajectory change. So I do think that the physician has to roll up their sleeves at times to get the trajectory change. But I would like to ask Michelle, you can answer Dave's comment, but I, I'm gonna also be a devil's advocate. There's, there's integrative clinics that take on really the identity and the fancy, not based on data, but the fancy of the leader. And so I facetiously call it uh, a la, integrative a la carte. And so that's part, part of what, when I put out autonomic rehabilitation, I'm trying to put a process so that it is not integrative a la carte based on the leaders. I like acupuncture over you know, energy crystals. Um, and so that there's some methodology. What do you think of integrative a la carte? Um, I, I'm, I'm still not entirely sure what you mean by integrative a la carte. There's uh, a menu of right. options and it just happens to, the options reflect the leader's right. preferences. Yeah, yeah, no. So, I mean, it has to, it has to be data-driven, obviously. And so, you know, for, for certain health issues, we have more data than others. Um, sometimes it's evidence-based and sometimes it's more evidence-informed, right? Um, and then it's, it's patient preference. And that's what true patient-centeredness is, is it's the combination of sort of what's the, what's, what's the evidence that we have, patient preference, and then the clinical judgment of the, of the clinician. Well, yeah, I, I, I a mean, good for the skeptics out there, integrative does not mean lack of evidence. You heard from her the word evidence five right. or six times. So, yeah. Um, well, and, and speaking of evidence, I mean, in the world of post-traumatic stress conditions, you know, PTSD and others, uh, you know, it's been shown that there are three, four different modalities that have have that have good evidence-based support for their efficacy. Yep. Um, but when, 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 but we also see a lot of failures because what we're not doing is actually 
working with the individual with the PTSD and finding out what is their preference, wh what means do they want? Do, do they want to uh, engage in? And and that that's part of it. It's, it's actually less a la carte and more more price priest fix. Like in advance, even though it's an integrative medicine, you're getting the soup, you're getting the main course and and, and the dessert. You don't have the option to just eat the dessert, but that's maybe what's going to help your PTSD or your back pain. You know, you, you don't offer them an actual dessert or one that's not going to have efficacy. But you, if you can offer someone four different choices, you know, and, and, and maybe just offer them two, four, maybe be overwhelming, you know, and, and, and let them kind of decide you're going to see, A, they've got, they, they know they're being listened to. All right. This doctor or nurse or whatever has taken the time and, you know, thought that I might want to actually control my 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 care to some extent and be engaged. You know, number two, that that I actually am in control. And number three, that look how much hope I have. There's all these choices from and the doctor is kind of and the nurse, whatever psychologist has indicated that, you know, and these things work across, you know, across many different folks. But but we need to know what would you like to do. That's amazing what you package there, you yeah. know. And, and then yeah, and then letting know the patient know that you're going to be continuing to follow with them to see how they respond to that. And and if it doesn't work, that there are other things that we can try. Right, right. And 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 that that you know even if we if we may improve it twenty percent, and then I'm going to work on the next ten percent or whatever it is, you know. And and and, and you know you may have to build on it. I hate to pick on the peanut butter person again, but it could be we're going open faced for three weeks, okay? And then we're going one schmear less, and then we're going organic and whatever, you know. And that's that's good healthcare because there this person's only difficulty could not possibly be just eating peanut butter sandwiches. But when you've gotten them engaged and they're like, you know, oh, oh while we're doing that, let's also throw a little fiber into that peanut butter, right? And let's also have you breathe in front of the GIF jar. And really, really get in sync with with the GIF, you know. And let's let's then that's the engagement. By the way, if you if you are oh, a Skippy lover out there, this is we I take like no Skippy stance. Too. No, I'm I'm we all take about no it. stance. No, Fresh ground roasted peanuts, nothing added. Oh, yeah, but, all right. But let me ask you: Do you pour out the oil, or do you stir it in each time? No, you stir it in. Oh, okay, all right. Thank you. Then we're then we're okay. Then we can keep talking. <laughs> Because I've inter I've interacted with people that literally they pour out the oil. I'm like, what? it's like eating a rock. So healthy. I know. I hear you. All right, good. Thank you. Uh, now we can keep talking for a little bit longer because I was I was really concerned. Yeah, yeah. Glad I'm still on your okay list. <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, it's all about getting the buy-in and two-way. Actually, for the clinician to stay engaged and empathetic and to be in sync. That clinician needs to appreciate that all of these things are your role and you're actually being helpful. I, I'm just finishing up a book on telehealth. And, and one of the big research things in the telehealth world is that it works well for patients, families like it, it's, it's, it's good, it's low cost, it's, it's uh, patient-centric, uh, uh, it's, you know, all these things. But clinicians don't get as jazzed by it. And they have a hard, many clinicians have a hard time engaging in it and feel burned out and, and don't feel like mm -hmm. they're being therap as therapeutic, despite evidence to the contrary. And I'm like, like, like clinicians, and that's, that's part of Ron's, you know, uh, I am third piece, or, you know, that there's three, there's three tiers is, is, you know, you need to kind of, you know, um, um, realize that this really isn't about you completely. <laughs> You know, right. like they're getting well is not about you. You know, like I like we're getting not only paid well, but it really feels good to interact and to, to get people well. You know, that yeah. it's not about that they have to like your choice, you know. So but but I, I do think uh, back to peanut, but I'm glad you stir it in. So I feel much better about this whole thing. The oil is important. <laughs> crunchy or smooth? Uh, yeah. You know, when I was younger, crunchy. But I don't want to get any caps, you know, so I'm, I, I go. Gotcha. How about you? What's your thing? Uh, smooth, sometimes a little crunchy. I, yeah. I like to mix wow. it up. Excellent. Okay. Excellent. Michelle, can I ask you another question? Sure. I, I hold the ground. So for integrative practitioners out there, I actually hold the ground 
on breathing. I think it is a requisite habit and skill. I think for PTSD, sitting still and breathing can be terrifying. For sure. And yep. And, and I regularly hear things like I've tried meditation. It doesn't work for me. And I actually, in a mindful way, I dig my heels in. I, you don't get an out. This is where I bring heart rate variability biofeedback in. And we're going to do the breathing. I want you to turn, change this device from red to green, blah, blah, blah. But what comes critical, the difference as a physician that I can say when they feel this shift in their heart and they have never felt it before and it scares them because it's different. As a physician, I can say, look, I know it's unsettling, but it's actually very healthy. It's actually the most energy efficient state. It's actually what you've been searching for. You actually need to sit with this and settle into it and not move on to acupuncture just yet. And so, so I really, to the integrative practitioners out there, I think it's a requisite habit and skill for someone with PTSD to do. We can do many other things, but I think it's requisite. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Oh, and, you excellent. know, I, I, mean, I, I like you too. Long diatribe. She's not going to say no, man. I was, I would have said no. How about I yes and? I mean, eventually, eventually, right? And there are different ways to get there. And, um, you know, I work with people where they're at. Uh, but, um, you know, I've had lots of people come to me say they've tried meditation and they just can't do it or they're bad at meditation. And, the, the first thing to do is to sort of understand what it is that they've been doing and what it is they think they're supposed to be doing, because there are a lot of common myths about meditation out there. The most common one being they think that they're supposed to blank their minds. You can't blank your mind. And that's not what meditation is about. Right. Right. So um, helping people understand that mind wandering is normal with meditation. And it doesn't mean you're a meditation failure. It just means you're human. Right. This is this is how the human brain is built. Uh, we can't turn off our minds like light switches. And then, then it's figuring out how you help people find a compelling focus. Some people love the breath. For other people, it's scary and they can't do it. Having a word or a phrase to focus on is incredibly helpful. Or an image or listening to sounds in the environment. Um, or breathing while you're doing art. Art outlet. Art. Right. Right. Yep. So, so, so uh, you know, we've never had a guest actually agree with you, Ron. That's amazing. <laughs> that wholeheartedly. That's why you asked Michelle to be on, isn't it? I, I'm teasing you, of course. Yeah. And 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 the 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 large amount of income she's getting from this podcast. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 We'll, we'll triple it based on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Michelle, are there any are there any burning areas or issues that we didn't talk about that we really should in this space, you know, yeah. I can tell that Ron's so done tomorrow. So tomorrow you are named emperor of integrative resources of the United States. What is your three? I would wait until after January 20th. I'm just saying, I think she'd be fired <laughs> very quickly. What is your three point integrative plan? Wow. Yeah. He's not messing around there. <laughs> Rob, um, why don't you give her one while she's thinking? Okay. Integrating, integrating mind-body medicine into primary care. Mm. Excellent. Well, I uh, how would you do that? What, 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 what does that mean? I mean, rather than just say that cool phrase, what does that mean to you? How would you do that? Uh, no, that's a great question. It's got to be covered. It's got to be reimbursed yeah. and paid for, right? Um, so, so right now, you know, most of the, say, mindfulness-based stress reduction programs, MBSR or the SMART program that's run out of Massachusetts General yeah. Hospital, right? People have to pay out of pocket for these courses. And they're often $400, $500, $600 for eight weeks. And they're incredibly valuable. And we now have some data showing, uh, for example, that these courses um, are cost-effective and cost savings, that they reduce healthcare utilization. Sure. Uh, yeah. 
And so expanding that evidence base, but but getting them covered so that people can actually access them. I, I um, have been working with a colleague here and we've been talking about putting in a grant to help people who live in urban uh, uh, low SES communities yeah. that are, yeah. Yeah. are you know, they're, they're food deserts, uh, there are issues of poverty and, and crime, there's issues of pollution, um, noise pollution, particulate pollution, which we know has adverse health effects and increases stress levels, right? But this is exactly the type of population that needs these skills the most and ha- doesn't have the financial wherewithal to access them. M- M- Michelle, does CM, does Medicare Medicaid provide any reimbursement for this? Speaking of, you know, from a health disparity not, standpoint, not, not from, nothing. not for, not for these eight week programs. Joe Biden, they do you will, hear this? Joe Biden, pay, are you listening? Come on, yeah, no. They will pay for me as a physician to sit with a patient and you know time spent counseling kind yeah, of thing. That's not, yeah, yeah. They will pay for uh, a therapist to teach these skills to patients. But a lot of patients don't want to do this in the mental health sphere. Uh, They don't self-identify as anxious or depressed, or they don't want to self-identify as that. Um, And and a lot of clinicians don't either, right? you know, they a lot, but and that was the beauty for um, you know where I worked previously as a general internist. People would come and see me, and yes, they might have anxiety or depression or sleep problems. But we also address their cardiovascular disease, their autoimmune condition, their hypertension, their you know whatever their other chronic physical health issues were, uh, and talked about how these skills were going to help improve that. Oh, and by the way, your sleep is going to improve and your mood's going to get better and you're just going to feel better overall. Yeah. One of the paradigm shifts, maybe I could throw this out there. I'd love to see the physical therapist become our diaphragm muscle, diaphragm muscle experts, and that breathing techniques using that diaphragm muscle is just a requisite part of physical therapy. That would be a way to get some of it covered, but that would require being the emperor of, of integrative health. And you've got to train the physical therapists as well. And And I can't tell you how many patients I've seen where I said, you know, do you know how to do diaphragmatic breathing? And they say yes. And then I have them demonstrate it to me in clinic and they do it incorrectly. And I, and I go over with them and I show them in clinic how to do it. So, so, yes. so a lot of patients think they know, but they, they aren't doing it properly. And, and that's why I always say the word muscle after diaphragm when I'm trying to commit. I, I, I want them to be the diaphragm muscle experts. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I would say that if you were actually the emperor, I think we, act, we need an entirely new line of healthcare professionals because Physical therapists are not going to suddenly want to take this on. They're busy with a lot of other things, and it's, it's, and they may feel that the top of their license is is in a different space. I mean, they're you know like like I just you know I think we should be just realistic. as many physicians do. Right, of course we right and psychologists. I mean, I'm picking about, but we need to be realistic. Is for if you're going to be the emperor, let's go large or go home. We I need, just did. We no, we no, but no, we got to go bigger than this. We need an entire new line. Of of healthcare professionals that are doing just this, that are another doing... silo. Is that no, what I didn't say no? I no, because you know the existing ones are pretty burnt, dudes. Right? They're they're eating peanut butter every day. Right? You know that they, they. You know we need to really train. Now I don't care if we started with physicians. I mean, I think any any clinician can do this work. They just have to have the training and the personal experience to be able to guide someone and the passion for it. Yep. Yeah. So we can, we yeah, we can get it done. Right. So Yes. Well, Ron, we've taken up an hour of her time. Okay. Yes, and it's been awesome. And I want to thank, thank you for Michelle. the invitation. This has been a lot of fun. Um, since we've gone and, and, a minute over, make sure when you get your payment requisition that you, yeah, put, you put that in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, and, and in case it's not obvious, this episode was sponsored by Smucker's All Natural Peanut Butter. <laughs> The third choice of people that listen to this podcast, but still an important one. So so thank you for the great story. Thank you, Michelle. Thank Thank you. you. Very much appreciated. You're most welcome. Keep smiling. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
thank you to Michelle Dossett for joining Dr. G and Dr. C today on the Abstract Doctors Podcast. For more information on Michelle, please visit physicians.ucdavis.edu. The Abstract Doctors is produced by The Abstract Athlete. For more information on podcast events and subscription boxes, please visit theabstractathlete.com. And as always, follow us on all of our social media platforms under The Abstract Doctors and The Abstract Athlete. The office is now closed, but join us for our next appointment when Dr. G and Dr. C speak with distinguished professor, wind studies, and director of music at Christopher Newport University, Mark Reimer.